Before we get started with our episode, I want to ask you for your input to shape the future of this podcast. Here at Grit & Growth, our goal is to help you grow your business, to create a solid company that has a positive impact on society. So as we develop new episodes, we'd love to hear what you think, including topics you'd like to learn more about and people you want to hear from. I've included a link in the show notes where you can share your thoughts and make your requests. It is stanfordseed.co forward slash podcast survey, all is one word. I'm really looking forward to learning more about you, our listeners, and to delivering content that helps you meet your goals. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Last week on Grit and Growth, we talked about strategies for communicating your big idea. We learned a ton about structuring your words to effectively capture and to keep your audience's attention while connecting with them emotionally. We also learned that the impact of what you say is crucially dependent on how you say it. Appearing confident and therefore being treated as confident by your audience, you yourself will begin to feel confident. So we create this virtuous cycle. So how you feel and what you do interact to give you that confidence that you need. Research tells us that at least 70% of communication is nonverbal. So the ability to project confidence will go a long way toward determining whether your communication achieves its intended goal. But confident speaking is easier said than done. So we followed up with our guest from last episode, Stanford lecturer Matt Abrahams, to get his advice on how to communicate with confidence. Matt is a certified expert. Beside teaching at the Graduate School of Business, he has written a book, hosts a podcast, and runs a website, all dedicated to effective public speaking. Together, we'll cover techniques like cognitive reframing, mindfulness, and Matt's crusade to end bad hooks. I'm Darius Teeter, and this is a masterclass by Grit and Growth, the Stanford Graduate School of Business, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs. I know it's only been a short time, but Matt, let's reintroduce you to our listeners. Okay, excellent. My name is Matt Abrahams. I am a lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I teach strategic communication. And one of my great pleasures is also to host the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. When we talk about building confidence in our communications, we have to think about where most people start from, anxiety and even fear. We've all heard the phrase, you know, it's some crazy percentage of people fear public speaking more than they fear death. Why? Why is that? Yeah, so that's a great question and, and one that has uh, confused people for a long time. And, and those of us who study it really believe it boils down to our evolution. It has to do with our status relative to other people. And I'm not talking about status like who drives the fanciest car, who gets the most likes on a post. But when our species was evolving, we would travel around in bands of about 150 people and your status in that group meant a lot. If you had higher status, you got access to resources, food, shelter, reproduction. And if you had lower status, it meant you were, you were scraping by and survival was, was very much in doubt. So anything you would do that would jeopardize that status could really negatively impact you. And so it's ingrained in us, we believe, to be nervous when you speak in front of other people. 
Because it really might be life or death. It could be back in the day. I, I don't think it's as serious now. But if you weren't that good with the club and the spear, you better be damn good at telling stories, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes. And instead of PowerPoint, you're, do, you're drawing on cave walls quickly. Right, right. Otherwise, no food for you. Well, I'm one of those people that's very a very anxious speaker. You know, I've had to take beta blockers to get up on stage. I've had multiple rounds of coaching, one-on-one communication coaching, all kinds of torture devices like live video and then playing it back for me and everything. I'm not sure what's working and what isn't working, but I I definitely am one of those people who who is sympathetic to that statement of fear. You did an episode of Think Fast, Talk Smart, where it's hacking your speaking anxiety. And your guest at that time, he said there's no difference between the physiological response to something that you're excited about and something that you're scared of or nervous or dreading. So putting our entrepreneur hat on, can entrepreneurs use the excitement about their business vision, about what they want to do to overcome their fear of pitching to investors or pitching to their board or convincing friends and family to invest in their big idea? You bet. In fact, reframing, we call it cognitive reframing, is really a powerful tool for managing anxiety. Your body is very economical. It has one arousal state primarily. So what triggers that arousal could be anxiety, could be excitement, but the same thing happens. Your heart rate beats faster, you perspire more, you you breathe more quickly. And again, we can see that as anxiety, which many of us label as bad. And we could also see it as excitement, which many of us label as a good thing. So I often coach the people I coach and the students I teach to take that physiological experience and say to yourself, I'm adding something of value here. This is something I'm excited about. This is something that can help others. And by focusing on that and reframing those physiological responses as positive, it certainly can go a long way to reducing anxiety. I will make one slight correction, Darius, to something you said. I don't know that we can ever truly overcome our anxiety. I think we learn to manage it and manage it well. But I actually think some anxiety is a good thing. It does give you energy. It does give you focus. So I'm not sure we overcome it, but I do think we can certainly manage it. You've written this fascinating book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, which is such a perfect title, right? <laughs> Thank you. And you say in the book that speaking with confidence involves this complex mix of physiological and psychological factors. Can you expand on that that crucial point just a little bit? I realize this is a, an entire book, but how can you encapsulate that complex mix for our listeners? So the way in which you think impacts the way you you act and the way you act actually impacts the way you think. And so this first notion we've been discussing, how you frame something, if you see it as self-focused versus other focused, if you see it as anxiety versus excitement, if you see it as opportunity versus threat. So the way in which you frame something absolutely influences the way you experience it. So Clearly, if you put yourself in service of others, see your communication as an opportunity, see the physiological responses as excitement, that will help calm those nerves and help you focus on delivering a a clear and concise message. Now, there are things that you can do physically that will help you appear more confident and ultimately make you feel more confident. 
For example, if you gesture more slowly, you make direct eye contact, you take deep breaths to slow your speech rate down, these things will help you appear to others as if you're confident because you're demonstrating what we expect to see in confident people and based on appearing confident and therefore being treated as confident by your audience, you yourself will begin to feel confident. So we create this virtuous cycle. So how you feel and what you do interact to give you that confidence that you need. When I was getting coached on public speaking, they always said, find a friendly face in your audience. And if you need to plant a friendly face, like have your buddy sit in the second row and smile and give you the thumbs up every time you look in their general direction. And when I used to present to my board of directors in my previous life, the CEO always sat next to the chair of the board. And our CEO is this lovely guy. But whenever I was presenting, and I looked at him, he was just giving me the stink eye. And I was like, and it wasn't like he was really mean. It's just, that was his face. Like he just had this deadly serious face. And so I had to always avoid that guy when I was making presentations because it would just sink me. Like it was the opposite of it. It was a sort of self-reinforcing negative feedback loop. And I like the point about self-focus further other focus because one of the things I learned was when you're up there and you're trying to speak publicly, you get wrapped up in this internal dialogue with yourself. Oh, I must look ridiculous. Oh, I'm nervous. It must show. Oh, my God, I'm sweating. Oh, my God, you know, I'm stuttering. How is anybody even still sitting in the room here? This is so bad. But it's all internal. Like, nobody can actually see any of that, right? You're just psyching yourself out as opposed to thinking, this audience is so cool and I really want to give them something interesting and this is going to be fun for them. Like, get it, get out of your head, basically. Is that what self-focus versus other focus means? Partially, partially, yeah. Self-focus versus other focus is when you put yourself in service of others, it takes the pressure off of you. You know, it moves that spotlight away from you to others, for sure. So, so that's part of it. I do want to comment on that notion of over-evaluation and judging. First and foremost, when people see us, they have a very different experience than we perceive ourselves as giving. Why? Because they don't have access to that internal dialogue. So one of the things I recommend, and it's very painful, as you mentioned yourself, record yourself and watch it. And the students I teach, the people I coach, they will almost unanimously say, gosh, I look more confident than I felt. And that's, again, because we don't have access to that internal dialogue. But I'll tell you, Darius, that point you made about judging and evaluating, that is a huge roadblock that gets in the way of a lot of people's confidence. I spend a lot of time in the work I do. And in fact, several of the episodes of my podcast have focused on this, of, of taking this notion of an improv mindset. In improvisation, it's all about being in the moment. It's about serving the audience. It's about saying yes and and moving forward rather than judging and evaluating. And, and if you allow me, I'm just going to tell this real quick activity that we do uh, to really highlight this for all of our MBA students at, at the business school. I do this workshop where I have people play this game called Shout the Wrong Name. And the only goal is you point at different things around you and you loudly and proudly call the things you're pointing to anything but what they are. And here's what happens. And this is amazing to me. And it happens to me as well. And it amazes me even more. People will point at something, let's say a chair, and they'll, they'll say, oh, cat. And then they'll say, oh, that cats have four legs, chairs have four legs. Oh, cats kind of sit, we kind of sit. And all of a sudden they're judging, calling something the wrong name as if it is not wrong enough. Like they screwed up the assignment. 
Right, right. Like, no, well, it's that they weren't even wrong enough. They were wrong, but not wrong enough. So this judgment, this evaluation that we do to ourselves really gets in the way of us just connecting. And it certainly contributes to our level of anxiety. So a lot of what I do with my students and the people I coach is help them understand that internal dialogue and help them focus that dialogue elsewhere so that they can actually do a good job in a confident manner. And it's hard, but once you make that work for you, it makes a huge difference. I hear that. You know, I, I was thinking about how much of what you're saying is aligned with basic principles of mindfulness. You know, being present in the moment, being focused outward, suspending judgment of yourself and others, right? Listening with curiosity and intent, right? And these are all, it sounds like some of the same practices for mindfulness would also be extremely valuable for how you communicate. Absolutely. And in fact, mindfulness is very helpful to managing anxiety. In addition to all the things you mentioned, two things come to mind. One, uh, mindfulness teaches that you give yourself permission to experience the things you're, you're experiencing. I can't tell you the number of people who will tell me, I shouldn't be nervous. I know this stuff. And then they get upset and more nervous because they're nervous, which is this negative self-fulfilling prophecy. If you just give yourself permission and say, hey, I'm a human being getting up in front of people, talking about something that's important to me, that really makes sense that I would be nervous and give yourself permission to experience that nervousness. And the other thing that mindfulness teaches is to forgive yourself. It's okay. It's okay to be nervous. If you make a mistake, it's okay. That's part of being human. So mindfulness can really be a helpful approach to managing anxiety. Now that we've got some strategies for escaping our own sometimes destructive internal monologue, how do we get into the minds of our audience? So I want to pivot now a little bit to the specific communication challenges faced by entrepreneurs. The importance of having a good hook, of drawing in the listener. What's a good hook? Can I share what a bad hook is? Yeah. I am on a personal mission, Darius, and if you and your listeners can join me, I would love to have this crusade move forward. I am on a personal mission to stop pitches, meetings, and presentations from starting with, Hi, my name is, and today we're going to talk about that is boring, it's banal, and often silly because you're showing a slide that has your name and your topic on it. So a good hook is something that captures people's attention. It is critical that we get people's attention and then engagement is actually sustained attention. So we actually have to sustain it. And that hook is where you do that. I like to joke that every good pitch should start like a James Bond movie. No, not with sex and violence, but with action. Get people participating and focused. And that's what will help people get interested in what you're saying. So you have to start by getting attention. And then the next thing you have to do for a good hook is to have relevance. People have to understand, oh, I should focus on this. And here's why. And that here's why part is the relevance piece. So a good hook is it has an attention getting step and a relevance step. So it could be starting with the first thing you do is you show a picture of a woman suffering from cancer and you say, this is Molly. She has stage three cancer. She just began to receive treatment when if she were anywhere else in the world, she would have had this treatment six months ago and her prognosis would be different. So you could start that way. I heard this great pitch and I can't remember what it was, but it was what if one brand and another brand came together and had a baby? That's what my company is. 
the love child of, and then they went in. I mean, it, it was just a cute way, but because they use those two analogies, you automatically understand what they're trying to do. Wow. So you can't see my other screen that's open right now, but it has a presentation I'm supposed to give at six o'clock tomorrow morning. And it starts with my name and my topic. So, I'm, so <laughs> let's change those. Yeah. Please. Let's start the crusade with me. I'll have to rethink what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> there we go. Every crusade starts with the one step, right? Not every situation will be the same. A pitch is different than a board meeting. Asking a VC for money is different than asking a family member. Matt says that having confidence will increase an entrepreneur's versatility no matter the audience. I think every entrepreneur should be able to tell their story from a big stage to a small conference room or a coffee shop table. They should be able to tell their story in 30 minutes, in 10 minutes, and in two minutes. I think it varies per person. There are people who are much more oriented to conversation and interpersonal connection, and they like doing that, and that's where they feel comfortable. And there are other people who appreciate the distance and the number of people that they can reach at once, and they like a bigger stage and a bigger room. But if given an opportunity to pick one, in my coaching and teaching career, it's interesting. People choose lots of different uh, situations for different reasons. It's an interesting point about having the two-minute version, the five-minute version, and the 10-minute version. When I worked uh, in my previous job, we actually had a card. I was working for a nonprofit, so we were always pitching. And we had this laminated card, and the card had three columns. And the first column was the elevator pitch, which assumes you have about 12 seconds. You know, what do we do? The middle column was like the two sentence. And the, and the third column was if you actually like if they're stuck with you eating a bagel, you can do this. <laughs> right, the elevator gets stuck. <laughs> yeah, the elevator gets stuck. So I appreciate the idea that you need different versions that still hit the same notes. In the Stanford Seed Program, we work with entrepreneurs from all over the world. So I was curious, how does culture influence how we communicate? Does the mantra, know your audience, extend to knowing their cultural norms? So there's this notion, and I'm not sure how familiar lots of people are with this. Uh, it's more an academic view, but it's very true. The notion of high and low context cultures, and we do see that. So a high context culture is a culture that takes context, the relationships, the environment, the situation, as something that's very important in the interactions with other people in low context is the opposite. The environment is, is less important. North America, the United States tends to be a low context culture. The example often used is Japan as an example of a high context culture. And of course, these are generalities. Uh, but what it means is, and what I see in my students is some students come in very focused on the relationship that exists, the environment in which the communication is taking place and are sensitive to that in ways that others aren't. And part of my job is to help people understand that, that there's a difference. And this difference comes from culture, from upbringing, from experience, and you just have to appreciate that. So sometimes the traditional or stereotypical American, you know, let's just get down to the facts, let's just start negotiating, talking right away, can be very off-putting to somebody who wants to focus on relationship, environment, and context. Uh, similarly, somebody who focuses on relationship, environment, and context coming in might be seen as slower 
or as less motivated or energetic about a point of view, when in fact that's not true, it's just the way that people initiate. So uh, long-winded answer, there are differences. The, the one that I see the most has to do with how quickly somebody tries to connect and how direct somebody is in their communication. And it can be summed up between high and low context cultures. From my perspective, you know, it all comes down to really understanding your audience and really taking the time to appreciate their approach and then adjusting where appropriate your approach to match what will help accomplish your goal is critical. Yeah. I think the other thing that I've noticed working all over the world is the respect for hierarchy and how that can affect how people communicate. So I used to work for an international bank and the leadership was heavily Japanese. And I learned very quickly as a quite a young person that it didn't matter how strongly I disagreed with something in a meeting, I needed to do that somewhere else. <laughs> and it was perfectly okay to challenge authority quietly in a room, but not to get up in a meeting and say, I disagree. And I, you know, I was a knucklehead. I was 28 years old. I didn't know what I was doing, but I learned pretty quickly. But it radically affected my communication style in meetings during the eight years that I was there. And I think that understanding that sometimes will, people will come into a room and uh, the way they talk to you is based on their feeling about where they sit in the hierarchy compared to you. And so sometimes that can come off as, you know, as the listener, it can come off as overly deferential and lacking confidence. But in fact, it's a lifetime of learning that there are certain modes of communicating to convey respect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hierarchy is very important. Social status and is absolutely important. And, and in certain uh, areas around the world, uh, more important than others. But being sensitive to that and at least considering how it should affect your communication is fascinating. And, and I'll just put in a plug for one of the episodes on Think Fast, Talk Smart, where I interviewed GSB professor Nir Halevi, and he studies what he calls psychological distance. And psychological distance between two speakers can really affect the communication. And so something interesting that takes what you've just said even to a deeper level about how it influences who we speak to and what we say to them. And on that important note, we wrap up this masterclass. I'd like to thank Matt Abrahams again. Please do your part to support his crusade against bad hooks. And if you want to hear more from him, he has an amazing book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, in addition to his fabulous podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart. And he curates a website of public speaking resources called nofreakingspeaking.com, which we'll link to in our show notes. Check them all out if you can. This has been a masterclass from Grit and Growth with Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you want to find out more about how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs throughout Africa and South Asia through Stanford Seed, visit us at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to hit follow and share it with a friend. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. Lori Fuller researched and developed content for this episode with additional research by Jeff Prickett. Kendra Gladish is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves. With writing and production from Isabel Pollard and Andrew Ganim, and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.